Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her fascinating new book, Professing Selves, Transsexuality and Same-Sex Desire in Contemporary Iran, Afsane Najmabadi, Professor of History and of Studies of Women, Gender and Sexuality at Harvard University, explores shifting meanings of transsexuality in contemporary Iran. By brilliantly combining historical and ethnographic inquiry, Najmabadi highlights the complex ways in which biomedical, psychiatric, and Islamic jurisprudential discourses and institutions conjoin to generate particular notions of acceptable and unacceptable sexuality. Moreover, she also shows some of the paradoxical ways in which state regulation enables certain possibilities and spaces for non-heteronormative sexuality in Iran. In our conversation, we talked about problems of translation involved in using Western categories in gender and sexuality studies in the Iranian context, the certification process for sex change applicants in Iran, shifting conceptualizations of transsexuality over time, continuities and ruptures seen in non-heteronormative masculinities in Tehran before and after the 1979 revolution, and the category of the narrative self. This multi-layered book is at once lyrically written and theoretically exhilarating. It will be of much interest to students of gender and sexuality, Islamic law, religion and science, and of contemporary Iranian society. It will also make a wonderful choice for graduate and upper-level undergraduate courses on the same subjects. Here now is my conversation with Professor Afsane Najmapati. Hello, Afsane. How are you doing? Um, I'm fine. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Afsane. As I was saying before we uh, began uh, our recording, that uh, you know thoroughly enjoyed this book. It is such a multi-layered uh, book, which brings together such a multiplicity of different kinds of discourses and navigates a very difficult and complicated uh, set of issues uh, so deftly. So really a pleasure reading this book, and I really look forward to our conversation. Thank you very much. So we have a tradition of new books in Islamic studies that our first conversation, uh, first uh, question rather, is always biographical. Uh, mm-hmm. So the two-part question to you is one, uh, could you share with us a bit with our listeners, how did you become a scholar who's interested in Muslim societies, uh, Islam? And then secondly, how did you get to uh, write this particular book? Um, okay, let me just explain one thing that I'm, I really would not consider myself a scholar of Muslim societies and Islam is just like, I wish I could be that, but I'm not. And, and so uh, what I have been doing for the past um, 30, 40 years, I can't remember, is basically studying one country only, uh, and that is Iran. Uh, so I've been studying various aspects of the social history and cultural history of that country. Um, and of course, Iran is a Muslim majority society. So there is no way of studying it without taking into account um, the 
um, the effects of Islam as a religion, but also as lived everyday practices by you know, overwhelming majority of the country, but also the fact that overwhelming majority of the country is Muslim and therefore a lot of their day-to-day practices is informed by what they believe is Islam also impacts other, even non-Muslim population. Uh, so there are a lot of common practices, common rituals that maybe one community considers informed by Islam, but also other communities. Uh, nonetheless, um, to the extent that uh, my work intersects with studies of um, the Muslimness, Islamic sense, Islamicness of Iran, it has to do with the fact that, of course, like you know, you want to study. Um, in this case, um, I was studying uh, how transsexuality, in particular, um, was formed its practices and its concepts um, in Iran over the past um, um, period. First, I thought it was a uh, recent phenomena. And then when I started working on it, it went back much, much uh, further, um, all the way to at least 1940s, with some references in 1930s, um, and that which surprised me. But once you start doing that, uh, you realize, of course, one of the things that has gone into these conceptions and practices, um, in particular, in 1960s um, and especially after the Islamic Revolution, is how the um, how the phenomena is perceived in Islamic jurisprudence by Muslim scholars. Or, um, for instance, when in an earlier period I was looking at emergence of um, feminism, women's rights activism, uh, whether all, late 19th century to the beginning decades of the 20th century or in recent decades um, among women, uh, Muslim women, um, so I wanted to to know how their concept of, say, women's rights and their concept of feminism is informed by their own perception of themselves as practicing Muslims. So in that sense, what I do is largely historical, sometimes ethnographic and sociological. Uh, but of course, it is in order to do all of that, there's no way that one important aspect of the culture, which is a Muslim majority society, would could be possibly ignored. So in that sense, it comes into it. Um, but, um, you know, there are people who are really Islamic, you know, scholars of Islam and Muslim societies, and I would not consider myself uh, qualified to be put in that category. Um, in terms of the present uh, concept, so I've been basically in um, in the United States since late 1960s, off and on, and this is where I've done my university work, and then since um, 1980s, my academic career, um, and being interested in women's issues, issues of gender and sexuality. Um, I've been um, in women's studies departments, part of the conversations on studies of women, gender, sexuality, within which, of course, study of transsexuality or same-sex desire um, has been a big part of um, of, of that um, of, of that 
sort of academic field um, and the kind of activism that has been associated with that academic field. So that is the sort of the more general background of my interest. Uh, but particularly what uh, drew my interest to this is that starting in the sort of uh, early parts of the, this century, around 2004, 2005, I explain it in more detail in the introduction, there was a sudden surge of press attention, uh, whether television, videos, documentaries, newspapers, both in Iran and internationally, to the issue of sex change and transsexuality in Iran. And, they, and being located in the United States, I was at first following largely how it was uh, reported in U.S. and European press. And the quality of the report, the arguments of the reports, I found very problematic. Um, so I basically wanted to learn for myself what's really going on in, in the country and why somehow my, my, my gut intellectual instinct tells me something is wrong with that international coverage. So it was a combination of frustration and curiosity and wanting to know what's going on in Iran that drew me to this subject. Terrific. Uh, so let's begin uh, with a broad question of sorts, which is, uh, could you... Uh, Briefly tell our listeners a bit about the central uh, theme and the argument uh, of the book. And also, I found it very interesting in the introduction. Uh, you talk about a theme which keeps on coming back, actually, in this book, which is uh, the problem of translation, uh, the problems mm -hmm. that you encountered in terms of translating certain categories that we have in gender and sexuality studies in the Euro-American Academy and then what you saw and confronted it as part of a study. So if you could also uh, shed some light on on how you wrestled with that problem. And, and we'll come back to this theme again in, in, in the course of our conversation. So it just has to begin uh, mm. this, this, uh, this uh, problem. Yeah, it would be good to start with the translation problems because, of course, as I mentioned, I went to this project as somebody who had been embedded in conversations in U.S. academia and um, U.S. discussions about uh, sexual and gender subjectivities, identity politics, and how that has translated um, into academic discourses. Uh, so the kind of questions that... I took with me, so to speak, um, to Iran uh, when I started um, the, the field work and the uh, historical archival research were informed by those categories. And in particular, um, I sort of uh, took a couple of questions with me. Uh, one, uh, clearly, I, I will, you know, I knew that um, same-sex um, practices are subject to legal uh, various levels, uh, not uniformly, but various levels of legal sanction uh, in Iran. Uh, and they have been um, not just in Islamic Republic, but prior to it, although the criminal code has changed. Um, so in a context in which same-sex practices uh, were subject to legal sanction. But more importantly, uh, same-sex desire uh, was socially considered um, by the dominant social attitude, something uh, not acceptable, possibly shameful. Um, but in that context, transsexuality and sex change, even though it bears very similar, if not even sometimes heavier, social approbations, has been has never been illegal, has 
well, um, I have to modify a brief period in 1970s. It was made illegal. But uh, prior to that brief moment, and definitely since 1980s, it has not been illegal. It has been um, it has been legal processes have been set in formally how to deal with it. So I wanted to know, OK, on the one hand, same sex desire, same sex practices have legal sanction. On the other hand, sex change does not. How does this um, configuration affect uh, how people conceive themselves, either uh, their desires, uh, their bodily identifications. How do they consider it that um, they come to a point where I can say I am a transsexual or to say, no, I am not a transsexual. Uh, I am what in English we would say gay and lesbian. Those are the words that some people use in Iran, but the overwhelming you know, number of people I interviewed don't necessarily use those categories. But basically, they desire sexually other people of their own sex. Um, so I wanted to know how does how, how how that differs compared to, for instance, in the United States or Europe, where both same-sex practices are legal and transsexuality is legal, and social approbations have changed to social acceptance um, in in both these places. So. I, I assume that there would be a different process of coming to identification with one and disidentification from the other in, in Iran compared to here. Um, and the second question I wanted to look at is, given the fact that um, definitely um, since 1980s, mid-1980s to the present, um, the public presentation of um, gender um, appropriateness, uh, to put it more simply, how you can dress and come into public as a woman and as a man on both levels is something that the state has been concerned with and has been very heavily uh, regulated, uh, continues to try to regulate. There are all kinds of resistances, but it is something that is continuously regulated. But also among families, um, observant Muslims have particular practices which very sharply distinguishes between how women can um, socialize with um, non-close related men in the family um, compared to closely related men in the family. So it's a, it's a situation which in many private spaces, but definitely in public spaces, is heavily regulated. So I wanted to know how does that affect also gender identification and gender disidentification among transsexuals? So those were the two questions I took with me. But then I realized these questions, um, uh, in fact, asking these questions and pursuing my historical research or ethnographic interviews with these questions was um, forming the kind of uh, answers I was getting from my interviews or the kind of material I was finding in newspapers um, that was actually not helpful for me and to 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 have these particular uh, distinctions for instance between gender sex and sexuality because that's what that's how since the 1970s 
um, the the shape of scholarship on these issues and, and the shape of identifications by people um, have formed themselves to make a distinction between bodily sex and gender, between gender and sexuality. And these delineations have implications. And then I'm in a society in which this, this particular type of delineation has not happened. It's a different set of delineations have happened just on the basic linguistic level um, in Persian, largely the same word is used for sex, for sexuality, for gender. Um, in some domains, like for instance, in domain of women's rights and feminist um, scholarship, a differentiation has emerged between gender and sex. So people call gender in Persian social sex because the word gender doesn't translate well into Persian. But in other domains, uh, like the issue of um, desire and bodily, uh, you know, the correspondence or lack thereof between sexual desire and bodily markings of you as male or female, this, this distinction doesn't exist. Um, and therefore, first of all, the one thing that's clear, that became clear is that not necessarily all the, dis the a distinction carries everywhere uniformly. So in some domains, the distinction has entered, and in other domains, it has not. And more importantly, um, the life of transsexuals in Iran um, and the kind of procedures they go through is possible precisely because the kind of delineation between sex and gender has not emerged. And that enables, um, for instance, in particular in um, Islamic jurisprudence by scholars who are trans-friendly, so to speak, and they've been trying to develop um, ideas and practices um, that will make, um, make it possible for other Islamic Jew, um, um, thinkers to accept transsexuality, it makes their work possible that this distinction does not exist. Um, and um, similarly related to this, um, there is a long history history going back to early 20th century in which people have been trying to translate psyche into Persian. Um, but the, the, the distinction between soul and psyche in Persian in terms of the language that is used is not so sharp as we, we allow in English. I mean, soul refers to something and psyche refers to something else. But the fact that soul and psyche, their Persian equivalent, is not so distinctly separate, again, allows particular um, traffic of ideas and enabling practices between psychology and Islamic jurisprudence that would have been impossible if same linguistic um, differentiations had happened in Persian as it has happened in English and possibly other, um, you know, other um, European languages. Um, so these are some of the issues that I had to navigate going from here to Iran um, to, to basically do the work. Uh, but the issue of translation and challenge also works the other way around. When I, come, when I came back here, for instance, let us say, and I began to write the book, and I wrote it in English being based here, um, I, I basically you know, had different sets of translation challenges. So, for instance, in Persian, 
there is no um, gender marking for th- for personal pronouns. There is no he and she, similar to Turkish and some other languages. Um, and this ordinarily doesn't really matter. People who translate from Persian to English or write about Iran in English, depending on who they're talking about, they they easily can choose whether they use he or she. But in the case of transsexuals, it's a critical issue. And as I'm sure you know, um, in English, there have been huge debates over who decides what pronouns um, one should use referring to any person. And there have been all kinds of sort of trying to invent new pronouns in English or basically use they instead of singulars um, um, and all kinds of discussions. So one of the questions I wanted to ask was, for instance, when I write this, what pronouns should I use? Um, It would become very cumbersome to use, for instance, S slash he throughout, or for instance, uh, disambiguated use he or she for earlier parts of somebody's life, and then at some point change the pronoun. Um, it, it, it's, and it's not just a question of a pronoun. Um, it is, in, for instance, in the United States, it's a critical moment when a transgender person, whether transsexual or not, whether bodily operations have been done or not, decides for a different name and decides for a different pronoun. And that becomes part of the um, self-transformation um, of one's subjectivity. Um, so, so in Iran, the equivalent of it, it's not a pronoun change. People do, of course, use different names once they decide that they're not male and they're female or vice versa. Um, but also one of the things that I noticed is that uh, people don't necessarily make that transition from one name even to another name or the other aspect of it from one set of dressing up um, as male or female, which is important, or using male spaces or female spaces, which more than bathrooms, it's um, divided in Iran. Um, so some public places, for instance, have different entrances for male entrance and female entrance. Um, some buses have different sections for um, not all, you know, there is fluidity, but generally there is a section that's largely for women, a section that's largely for men. Um, so how do how do people make these kind of transitions? Well, it turns out that people don't necessarily make a, a sudden break of changing name, changing clothes, moving from one space to another space, the transition period, in fact, enables people to navigate these spaces and these names depending on a particular social moment and social location. So if they have a job that's very good, but they've got that job a man, they may not change their clothes or how they look like going to their work and only change clothes and how they look after work when they socialize with their friends and they're in a different space. And I can, you know, examples like this, there were many. Um, so this is, these are the kind of issues that uh, translation poses, not just on the language, but also in terms of practices. How do how do people practice transnationally differently um, being a transsexual? Um, and exactly in a place, as I said, because there is no distinction between transgender and transsexual, because there is no distinction between gender and sex, particular practices become possible that are 
not even needed or thought about in other contexts. Now, uh, can you walk us through the uh, certification process uh, for sex change applicants uh, in Iran? It's a fascinating and detailed chapter that you have on uh, the certification process. And in what ways uh, do the procedures, actors and institutions uh, involved in this process bring into view uh, the conjoining of biomedical, psycho, sexological and Islamic jurisprudential discourses? There was a moment in your uh, book which was really fascinating where you talk about uh, you were about to sit in the office of a doctor at the Tehran uh, Psychiatric Institute and there is mm-hmm. a, a joint framed uh, portrait of the Ayatollah's Khomeini Khamenei and on the adjacent wall there is a portrait of Freud. So that was a really mm-hmm. remarkable moment that really went to the heart of uh, uh, this major conceptual theme of your book which is the conjoining of these different discourses. So if you could combine those two, the process and the larger conceptual uh, yeah. uh, space. Yeah. Uh, the procedure, the transition procedure, so to speak, um, has been since 1960s rather haphazard. It was um, there was different kind of configuration in 60s and 70s, um, but it was it, it was quite it, it wasn't um, sort of set officially uh, in any form, and then. Post-1979, um, in, in particular from mid-1980s, all the way for the next two decades, which is when I started actually doing field work, there have been a very, very active uh, body of trans activists um, in Iran who have worked, who worked for almost 20 years very hard to develop a set of Um, procedures that speaks to their needs. In this process, which coincided with, of course, um, formation of what it means to have Islamic State in post-1979 revolution um, and how, for instance, um, things can be Islamicides, and that would include medical practices, legal procedures, all kinds of things. So there was this decade in 1980s through the 90s, that everything was changing in Iran, not just for transsexuals, but generally in terms of um, projects of compliance between science and Islam, um, project of trying to make legal codes and other um, uh, practices uh, to become Islamic. This was a very prolonged uh, process. It's not something that happened overnight. It took several decades. It's an ongoing process. In fact, it's continuing as we're now talking. In this process, um, these procedures that have been more or less consolidated now were set, um, were, were developed. The way it is, is that basically when um, um, at some point um, the, um, the trans subject, let's call it for the um, for ease of conversation uh, somebody comes to this um, um, understanding um, that as they say they they um, articulated that they are in the wrong body said so that they are for instance female but were born wrongly in a male body or vice versa. Um, often um, this happens during adolescent years uh, but once people start thinking about it, they also look back and uh, reference their childhood and um, remember, for instance, that, you know, they always um, liked boys' toys and boys' games, but they were female or vice versa. Sometimes um, 
they themselves come uh, to, um, uh, to a psychologist, for instance. Sometimes they're sent by school authorities. One, sometimes parents bring them, neighbors bring it to um, attention of parents. And one way or another, this becomes something that uh, the person and sometimes their families also need to deal with. Sometimes families actually shun their adolescents, either they lock them up or they throw them out of the house because they find it shameful. Uh, but but uh, once the subject, whether as a growing adolescent or adult person, decides um, that he or she is transsexual and wants to go to transition, they have to approach several um, um, state authorities, governmental offices um, that they need to work with. One is that they do need um, to basically open a file with the legal medical organization of Iran because they have to give the final authorization for somebody basically to issue what's called certificate of transsexuality. Um, they do need um, to go to to rule um, a four to six month process of supervised um, therapy. Um, and um, if they can afford it, they go to private therapist. If not, um, there's a list of um, state sub, you know, therapists through Tehran Psychiatric Institute or a couple of hospitals that have um, they, they have sections for this, um, and they need to go through that. During that process, they also have to get tested for um, hormonal balance for all kinds of tests that they have to go through. Um, the um, Tehran Psych Psychiatric Institute, um, contrary to its um, name, that um, sort of um, feels like um, a, psychi a psychiatric uh, type of institution, is actually um, quite um, a friendly institution. The um, therapists there, and in particular the social workers uh, who work with people who go to them, um, are quite remarkable people. They also try to approach families, um, especially for those people who have been thrown out of family. They try to bring the family in, uh, in part because um, in Iran, you know, your life largely becomes possible or impossible through your family networks in terms of job opportunities, education, et cetera, et cetera. They do their best to bring them together. At the end of this process of four to six years, once the therapist, for instance, at the hospital or at the Tehran Psychiatric Institute uh, uh, writes a report and sends it to the um, legal medical organization of Iran, and if they you know, there, there is a meeting of a commission, they discuss, and at the end they decide if this person is truly transsexual. They send that report to the Legal Medical Organization of Iran. They have their own uh, commission and their own interview with the subject. Once they ratify it, then that they issue um, a, trans, um, a certificate of transsexuality. That entitles the person um, to all kinds of benefits, for instance, to get hormone prescription on national health um, um, or to basically get minimal national health coverage um, through that certification. It permits um, trans women uh, to get um, exemption from military uh, conscription, um, and it, it allows them to slowly to go through bodily transformation, but it doesn't require them to do that. Uh, but it's very critical piece because 
for instance, male-bodied person who appear in public as female, dressed up as um, as woman with makeup or whatever, if the police picks them up and they don't have that certificate, they're actually breaking the law. You can't do that uh, with for just out of whim. You can't cross-dress and go to public if you need to do that. But once they have that certificate, that's possible. And then at the end of the process of bodily transition, they go to a, a law court, which has been specially set to change their name and change all their legal documents, whether school certificate or driver's license or passport, uh, national ID, everything um, then gets changed. It's a bit more complicated than that, but that's basically what, how the process works. Now, one of the key themes that you explore in your book is uh, changes in the very conceptualization of transsexuality uh, in Iran. And you make the argument that this concept in relation to sexual deviancy shifts over time from what you call the physical body onto the psychosocial, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very fascinating argument. Could you explain that argument for our listeners? Yeah, first let me explain one thing. Um, people don't use the concept of se- sexual deviancy the way it's used in English, except um, in psychosexology um, literature. It is a very psychological concept. Sometimes it has seeped into social conversation um, and people use it as deviant, but it's not the most common way people talk about it. So deviancy has remained, thankfully, just largely a psychiatric um, um, category. Uh, But yes, it is a very important issue. So when you look at 1940s, um, the discussions of transsexuality are actually very um, different from the 1970s in the sense that initially transsexuality was seen as an affiliate with um, um, intersex condition. Uh, so it was it was it was seen to be a variation of being intersex uh, or being um, um, what in the older English language was was called hermaphrodites. Um, but um, in that sense, um, the reports on sex change, for instance, saw this as a marvel of scientific advance and scientific development that um, now science could correct whatever was seen as to be inborn bodily. Uh, problems, uh, but that that in part is because we don't we didn't have the entry and dominance of psychology and psychiatry into Iranian uh, conceptions until 1950s and definitely into 1960s, where um, the kind of uh, sexology and um, psychosexology that began to divide people into particular categories ranging from transsexual to trans to homosexual, transvestite, and then all the way to what is perceived to be normal heterosexuality. These began to develop and come in um, medical psychological conversations, but it largely remained there. It's coming into popular perception and popular culture was much more limited than its equivalent, for instance, in Europe and United States. But nonetheless, within the scientific community, that began to the the psychosexological literature um, began to affect, they started uh, seeing transsexuality as an extreme form of homosexuality. So transsexuality, which in 1940s, 
did not carry any negative load, by the time we come to 1970s, began to carry the same negative social approbation load of homosexuality. And that posed a lot of problems for transgender, transsexual people in that period. Um, at the same time, in I think as early as 1966, 1967, um, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, who at that time was in Iraq, had been approached um, as a question, had been posed to him, if sex change is um, Islamically forbidden. And his answer, which was issued at the time, was that, no, it's not forbidden. There's nothing in Islam that forbids changing the body from one sex to another. But because in that period, um, Islamic discourse and medical discourse um, hardly ever spoke to each other, that um, opinion, that fatwa, was remained largely unknown to medical professionals. And it's only in 1980s um, that it became operative in the sense that in 1980s, again, a couple other um, transsexuals went to him, and this time he was in Iran, of course, and asked his opinion, and he reissued um, that edict. And this time it really mattered because in the 1980s until his death, he was the most politically powerful, not just religiously um, powerful person, but also politically powerful person in the country. And 1980s was a time that legal procedures were being Islamicized, so to speak, but also sciences and other fields, including human sciences, social sciences, but definitely medical sciences, were demanded uh, to bring their practices in compatibility, in compliance to Iran. So this began a very productive conversation among uh, medical scientists, um, jurisprudence, uh, psychologists, and in this uh, conversation, trans activists played a key role from 1980s to the present time. Um, and it, the, the practices, the procedures that I'm talking about was basically an outcome of the next 20 years of these conversations and consolidations. Um, and that opinion, of course, was critical because it basically um, uh, allowed a lot of Islamic scholars to uh, work on it and to issue um, um, to issue their opinion. And basically the way it is uh, conceived by Islamic scholars who um, who approve of a sex change and accept transsexuality is that um, the, um, this, let's say, the sex of soul and the sex of the body in most people correspond. But there is um, there are a number of people in which, for reasons we don't know, um, um, these don't correspond. They have a male body, but a female soul. And because we can't change soul, but we can now change the body, there's no reason for the body not to be changed to correspond with the soul. So this is, this is how it is in simple language um, explained in jurisprudential literature. And at the same time, of course, medical um, um, psycho psychologists in their own language use um, sometimes similar um, sort of um, the sort of lack of correspondence between um, sexual um, um, desire and identification and gender identification and gender um, uh, subjectivity. So it, it's a different language, but the two languages um, speak to each other. Um, and therefore, this make it possible 
for um, um, surgeons, for psychologists to practice uh, their sort of biomedical informed practices uh, within a context in which um, they have developed a language um, that is acceptable to Islamic jurisprudence. Now, let us, uh, with your permission, Afsane, shift our focus uh, to the question of masculinity, uh, which we especially explore in the context of Tehran. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the question there is one that you also explore in this uh, uh, chapter, is uh, what are some of the key uh, continuities and ruptures uh, seen mm-hmm. in non-heteronormative masculinities in Tehran uh, before and after the 1979 revolution in Iran? Oh, that's a complicated question. Yeah, I mean, before 1979, and in particular in 1970s, as far as um, male uh, practices and perceptions were concerned, we had a, a sort of an emerging culture um, that sometimes uh, visitors from Europe and America would call gay culture, but this was not a word that was used by Iranian men themselves. Uh, but there were particular spaces in which uh, non-heteronormative uh, presentations and practices um, began to be, let's say, tolerated. Um, although not by any means approved of, and in particular, in particular professions. Now, I have to modify this because it doesn't mean these didn't exist before. In fact, in different classes, in different professions. So, for instance, if you take um, female-dressed male dancers, it's a very long history in Iran, definitely um, in we we have historical material all the way from 19th century to the present time um, that young boys and sometimes adult men were dressed as female and to practice uh, inter- entertaining and dancing male audiences. Um, so in it, it that that is sort of in, changed in some ways became. Um, uh, modified in other ways and developed in some professions, in particular television, entertainment, the arts, um, uh, a culture um, that was semi-visible. Uh, but this, all of this sort of went through the same kind of social upheaval that 1979 revolution brought to the country. And in particular, because gender norms came un- under scrutiny and became regulated, some of these spaces could no longer permit these alternative practices. Um, and this is what also began um, pushing a lot of transgendered identified people who wanted to change their body to act on changing their bodies rather than just um, presenting themselves in public um, differently. Um, but, but conceptually, I think what was critical uh, also over the past two, three decades um, is that a different perceptions of uh, male sexual identity emerged, perhaps because of internationalization and transnational movement of concept of gay. So whereas in 1970s, Iranian men who um, maybe American and European visitors would identify as gay would not 
in fact, consciously would not call themselves gay because they thought gay was um, sort of the English equivalent of a very pejorative word in Persian that people referred to them by, and they didn't want that um, load of pejorative um, assignation. Uh, by the time you come to late 1990s into the 21st century, um, gay has become um, an assignation that at least some men who are more familiar and connected with the transnational um, flow of these concepts do identify. But one of the things that became to also clear and one of the things I try to argue in the book is that even, even for those people who call themselves, say, gay or lesbian or whatever, the meaning for them as they say it in Persian within their daily practices in Iran is not the same as somebody who in New York says I'm gay or in other urban centers or non-urban centers in Europe and America use that because the affiliation and disaffiliation of the concept in Iran is not identical with the affiliation and disaffiliation. So in Iran, if somebody says I'm gay, specifically it means I am not transsexual. That's not something that happens here. You can be a trans um, man in this country and be gay. So the, the two concepts are not exclusive or a trans woman and be in a lesbian relationship. The two concepts are not seen to exclude each other. Whereas in Iran, it is so far, it may change, seen that they exclude each other. So um, the, there have been shifts from 1970s to 2000, but also I think what's important is that um, these shifts, um, um, they, they don't make a one-to-one -one correspondence between Iran and um, um, Europe or America. But also in Europe and America, I think there are different spaces offer different identification, but that's a different discussion. Right. So let us return to the theme of translation that we were talking about earlier. Uh, in the seventh uh, chapter of your book, you very poignantly talk about certain uh, ways in which uh, particular distinctions between categories such as transsexual, gay, and lesbian, uh, mm. with which you entered your research, uh, were interrupted and brought into question by the narratives and what you call self-cognition of people whom you interviewed. Uh, mm -hmm. So could you give us a couple of examples uh, of this dissonance and how did that make you reconsider dominant categories in Western uh, gender and uh, sexuality studies? Mm -hmm. Well, in one example that I do mention in the book, I, I um, became part of the life of two women uh, who had lived together for a long time. Off and on, one of them had considered transitioning from female to male, but had never done that, hadn't done anything close to it, hadn't even taken hormones or anything. It was just an idea that she had played with off and on. Um, so I, you know, I, I used to have long conversations, not just interviews with them, became friends and part of their life. And one day, uh, as, I, as we were talking, uh, um, the person who I said off and on had considered um, whether she's transsexual or not, suddenly said, well, you know, if you want the truth, I'm something like 70% lesbian, 30% transsexual. This was something, and it is one of those 
moment that sort of froze me in my tracks and thinking, what on earth, how could anybody talk about a concept of identification that's quantifiable almost in terms of, you know, I'm 30% this, 70% this. That's one of those moments when you feel you need to rethink what what identity categories mean for for her compared to identity categories mean for people somewhere else and you know as i learned more in terms of knowing her life knowing her practices it became very clear what she really means is that overwhelmingly as she lives her everyday life in most uh, spaces in most relationship as she relates to her female partner and to other people in her life, um, she feels and she um, conceives herself as a female person who desires other female persons. But then there are occasions in which she feels, oh, well, what if if I change my female body? What would it be like? Maybe I should. Maybe I should change my name. Maybe I should uh, dress like a man. Um, um, And all of these things are uh, are situational. So I asked her, so like in what circumstances that idea says like, for instance, for a while, um, there were screenings of documentaries about transsexuality that had been made in Iran by filmmakers and had public screenings. And she said, when I would go there um, and see all these transsexuals, trans men, trans women, or I would go to their socializing spaces. I would feel a sense of identity with them, a sense of identification, and I would feel maybe that's what I should do as well. But then I would leave that space, and in my other social interactions, I was perfectly comfortable. That was a female-bodied person, uh, but I was in a uh, loving relationship with another woman. So this is the kind of... Um, sort of disjunction that made me think actually the conception of self and how she comes to um, to identify herself as a particular person is not the same as um, I had become used to presuming presuming this sort of um, totally sort of self-referenced deep psychic self that's the dominant narrative defining uh, sexual and gender subjectivities, um, say, in the United States or Europe. And I, I want to emphasize dominant because I think even in the United States, even in Europe, people do use different concepts of what it means to be a self. And it's not always the deep um, psychic um, self that they reference, but it has become a dominant narrative here. And that dom- narrative is not the dominant narrative in, in Iran, to the best of my understanding. Now, as a final a substantive uh, question, uh, could you explain to us uh, this very interesting category that you use towards the end of your book, uh, what you call narrativizing self, uh, what that uh, category means and how do you mobilize it in your book? Mm-hmm. That's really not my invention of category. It's actually something that has been uh, in circulation um, for a long time. In fact, going back, um, both narrative self and performative self, both of them I use, they go back to um, Irving Goffman, to a whole lot of other other people in, in gender studies, in psychology and sociology studies. But the way I sort of 
found it useful to appropriate is um, to basically um, you the idea of narrative self is how we talk about ourselves, how we articulate who we are, the stories we tell about ourselves to ourselves and to other people, how we present themselves, how we in a way, perform particular sense of self and perform not in the sense that we're forging it, we're making it up and we're lying about it, but actually what we do uh, in our everyday life is performing um, ourselves and narrativizing that performance in the way we talk about it, in the way we um, enact ourselves. Um, And what I, I found it useful to to use the concept of narrative self and performative self that is already uh, used by a lot of people um, in because what I came to conclude is that if we're not talking about a self that's narrativized vis-a-vis this deep psychic uh, psychological self um, that has become the dominant narrative in Europe and America, I wanted to know, what, what, how else is the sense of self narrativized and performed? And I found it useful because I, I, I'm trying to grapple with and present a sense of self that's very particular in relation to other people in spaces where we do it. So, for instance, If you're in conversation in a social space among friends, you narrativize and perform a different sense of self, which has to do with that particular node of all these other selves being present um, as you are. And if you're talking to your parents, for instance, um, or in a family setting, um, there are different um, location of you vis-a-vis in these other relationships of siblings, uh, child-parent relationship, and those locations produce a dynamic in which you perform a different sense of self and narrativize it differently. So uh, as we're approaching uh, the end of our uh, time, Sonny, could you share with us a bit about what you're working on these days? Uh, What's the next project? <laughs> a totally very, very different project has no connection almost with this and my previous work. Um, I, I'm generally a sort of 19th century cultural historian, early 20th century. Um, and uh, because I've been working since 2009 and earlier on, on developing a digital archive of resources to do with social history of women and gender in 19th century Iran, I came more and more uh, to realize um, the kind of practices of everyday family life has gone through an enormous shift in early 20th century. Um, so I'm basically that's what I'm working, trying to see not so much how the concept of family changed. That work has been done by other historians um, and that the whole notion of emergence of companionated monogamous marriage as the social ideal, uh, but actually with in part Because of that ideal, and in part despite that ideal, people actually live family practices of everyday life that doesn't necessarily correspond to that ideal. And I want to look at how it doesn't correspond and what what are some of the consequences of that disjuncture. Professing Selves, Transsexuality and Same-Sex Desire in Contemporary Iran by Professor 
Afsane Najmabadi, published by Duke University Press in 2014. Well, Afsane, thank you so much for this meticulous and wonderful book and uh, for this conversation. Really enjoyed reading the book and uh, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And I'm sure our listeners would also agree. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Afsane Najmabadi about a brilliant new book. Professing Selves, Transsexuality and Same-Sex Desire in Contemporary Iran. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please also join us next time for another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tariq, signing off. Be well, take care and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.